0: This is episode 200 with clinical assistant professor in physical therapy at the University of British Columbia, PhD in running biomechanics and injury prevention, 233 marathoner, and currently practicing physiotherapist, Mr. Chris Napier. Welcome to the 200th episode of the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to features a practical discussion of running form and injury prevention with one of the world's leading authorities on these topics. We're busting myths, helping you think more effectively about staying healthy, and how science is making us rethink decades-old traditions. Now, if you're new to the podcast, you can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry to give you the knowledge, the mindsets, and the tools to get faster, stronger, and become a more capable athlete. Because if you better understand the process of improvement when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. And I bet you'll also love our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos on how to run longer strength workouts, how to stay healthy and run with better form, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. And a big thanks to our newest sponsor, Precision Hydration. If you have ever struggled with hydration or electrolyte issues, it's worth checking them out at precisionhydration.com because they have a free online sweat test that will help you get a personalized hydration strategy that you can test in training. Summer is in full swing here in Denver. Just yesterday, it was 97 degrees. So stock up on your electrolytes today. Our listeners can get 15% off your first order by using the code STRENGTH15 when checking out at precisionhydration.com. And don't miss episode 147 of the podcast, where I interviewed Andy Blow, the CEO of Precision Hydration. Our guest today is Chris Napier, author of the new book, Science of Running, a professor of physical therapy, practicing physiotherapist, 233 marathoner, and medal winner at the Canadian track and field championships in 1996 and 1997. Chris's experience encompasses the full breadth of clinical practice from private to elite sport, research and service to the sport physiotherapy community. I was so excited to speak with him and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I had having it. We're talking about form, strength and injuries three subtopics of running that I'm personally fascinated by and think are just crucial for runners to understand. We're going deep on these topics, including new research, myths you should stop believing, and his most important advice to stay healthy. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Chris Napier. All right, welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, my pleasure to be here. Well, first congratulations on your new book, Science of Running. I can't wait to talk more about it. It's just such a a beautifully well-illustrated and evidence-based book. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about some of the concepts in there.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Likewise, let's dive into it. So when you initially
0: looked out on, you know, the whole landscape of training books out there, you know, there's all kinds of running books that exist out in the marketplace. What made you want to write this book? And I ask because I think it's really unique in how it connects form, strength, and injuries, three subtopics of running that I think are just so critically important. And you've kind of weaved them together in this really amazing package. So what was the impetus for
1: you wanting to write this? Um, Yeah, I guess... You know, I really wanted something that covered everything, um, from anatomy and physiology to biomechanics, common running injuries, uh, and their treatment, uh, and of course, training plans. Um, you know, I think uh, I, you know, I've read many of those books out there, as I'm sure you have, and there there are some great books for for a lot of different things. But um, I wanted something that could be kind of a handbook for the everyday runner, um, for someone who, you know just needs that book on their shelf for when they're uh when they're injured or when they're you know looking for something new to you know to do with their training or uh taking their training to the next level. Um I just wanted that book to be there um that they could always reach for. Um and you know something I've learned from from both my research and my clinical work is that you know it doesn't matter how important that message is uh that you've got uh if if you can't get across to the intended audience. And and I wanted a book that could boil down sometimes, you know, these complex concepts uh, so that every runner could understand. And, um, you know, luckily, uh, DK, the publisher, if you're familiar with DK books, um, if, if anyone's got children, they make a lot of children's books. Um, they make a lot of books in the uh, sort of education arena, um, and, and they're largely in graphical format. And I was extremely lucky to, to partner with them on this and and have the graphic design ability of Uh, Aaron Lewis who did the illustrations um, to really help convey these ideas Uh, and it was a really interesting process for me to go through that basically putting my words into his pictures Um, it 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 was an enormous amount of work on on both our parts uh, on both ends and a lot of back and forth Um, but uh, I was really lucky to to work with someone like him to to be able to produce something like this
0: I've listened to a couple of interviews with other authors who have created very visual, lengthy books, and it's never an easy process. So all the more credit to you for being able to put together such a uh, a book that talks about, you know, some some what I'll call uh, some training nerdery. But on this podcast, this is exactly why we're here. And, you know, some people might not think that training theory and physiology and mechanics are super interesting. But, you know, this is the the really interesting stuff for me about the sport of running. And you're just such a great person to talk to about this. And, you know, I just love how the book is just so research-backed, science-oriented. And like you said, it's like a handbook for the injured runner or maybe the clinician who treats runners. And I'd love to dive into that science a little bit more. I'd love to know you know, maybe what new things that we have learned about physiology or exercise science that are, that's now changing how runners train. Have you seen a shift in training or how injuries are handled due to those new research findings in the last couple of years?
1: Well, you know, I think, I think some things have changed and some things haven't. Um, you know, I think, uh, certainly, Uh, there was a a little thing that happened around 2008, um, when, uh, Born to Run came out and, and people started reading that and and just thinking about, thinking outside the box really, right? Like up to that point, everyone kind of wore traditional running shoes and, and, uh, you know, didn't really think about, um, the footwear or, or, you know, different options for footwear, um, but also didn't really think about form, um didn't really think about, you know, biomechanics and how that might affect, uh, injuries or performance. Um, and so, you know, I, it, it kind of started a revolution. Um, and, and I think not only among kind of the, the running class, but also in the research class, I mean, there, there's been a, an explosion of research around, um, running biomechanics, uh, in distance runners since then, um, that built on, you know, research that had been done previously, but I think, Um, you know, there's a lot more, uh, that's sort of taking place on biomechanics and footwear in the last, um, you know, 10, 12 years since that, uh, that time that's informed, um, a lot of the the training decisions we, we make and the treatment decisions we make in the clinic today. Um, I guess, you know, in my realm as a, as a physiotherapist and a, a researcher, you know, largely in biomechanics and musculoskeletal injuries, I think runners are much more open to, to some form of gait retraining. Now Um, this idea that uh, you know, running is perhaps a little bit like other skill-based sports and it's not just something that people, you know, get off the couch and do naturally uh, in the best way possible. You know, we're still a ways away from deciding, you know, whether we can do that as a preventative measure or as a rehabilitative measure um, and the type of gait retraining uh, we do. But I think, you know, we're starting to put to rest some of the notions that, you know, things like changing foot strike is, um, you know, probably not a good idea um, as an intervention to prevent injury. Um, there was a great systematic review on that that came out uh, by a Group Groupon Australia a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, we're also um, seeing some encouraging effects uh, or encouraging research recently on the, the positive effects of increasing cadence uh, as an intervention. So um, there's a recent, paper that just came out uh, about a month ago, um, looking at, uh, how an increase in your running cadence can reduce the risk of bone stress injuries or stress fractures, um, which was really encouraging to see. And then I think, you know, another area that we're seeing improvements in is, uh, the area of education, um, education, you know, tailored for runners. Um, we know that most, if not all running injuries are due to some sort of training error, Um, And so providing timely education in the form of, you know, uh, if you're feeling pain greater than three out of 10, uh, you know, during your run or you're changing your gait to avoid pain, um, then you should probably stop running and and seek some advice from a health professional. That sort of thing can really take a situation where a runner is perhaps, you know, headed for an injury and, and, uh, and turn it around. Um, And I think this is probably one reason why we see more injuries in, in, novice runners um and and also why there probably tends to be less injuries in like a, a coach led running clinic or a training group where there's uh someone to seek advice and education from and then i guess the other area would be you know in strength training um and i think runners are finally reluctantly but finally starting to embrace the idea of of uh, strength training um which is a good thing and i think it's particularly important for masters runners um which is an area that's booming i mean people Um, are not retiring at the age of 40 anymore. They're going on and running into their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and and actually performing at those levels. Um, And so I think in that population, strength training is even more important um, in order to to maintain muscle mass, but also uh, in order to to improve performance.
0: Yeah, Chris, sorry, I I started laughing a little bit when you (laughs) said that bit about strength training because I've been on this crusade over the last couple of years to get endurance runners to take strength training more seriously, because I feel like it is one of the big missing ingredients in a lot of runners' training. So I'm really glad to hear you talk about that. And yeah, it's so interesting how many areas in which we are progressing our knowledge in. And I love how it's just so interesting how the born-to-run phenomenon back in 2008 or so really started this whole movement in a lot of different ways. You know, the minimalist movement... And, you know, that was probably a, a boon for podiatrists everywhere. Uh, and then, of course, you know that whole discussion about form, and 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 I, and I think it's just so interesting how that was almost a catalyst for a lot of this research because it changed how people thought about some of these issues. And and I was certainly one of them. You know, I was the the person who went out and got a pair of five fingers after I read Born to Run, and. Thankfully, I didn't do much running in it, in it, so I stayed healthy. <laughs> I'd love to talk about a couple things that you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned new guidelines for increasing cadence as a way to prevent some types of injuries, and I do find like cadence is an issue that is kind of like low hanging fruit for runners to work on. And it, it's something that can have, I think, outsized returns for the athlete. Can you talk a little bit more about those guidelines and, and really how to think about those? Should we be worrying about our cadence all the time? Is cadence only applicable during some types of runs compared with others? You know, should I be worrying about my cadence at mile 19 of a marathon? You know, so how, how should we internalize this and, and use it to our advantage?
1: Yeah, I think um, you described it perfectly. I think cadence is really a low-hanging fruit um, and, and something that's very easy to, to change. Um, and it's also very low risk. Um, you know, I talked about changing foot strike, and I think there, there is a role for changing foot strike in some cases, um, but it, it's certainly high risk uh, because you're, you're kind of abruptly shifting stresses in the body and, and potentially, um, you know, saving one area only to injure another area. Um, but cadence is, is more of a global change and there's some, you know, um, great evidence on, um, on sort of how an increase of, you know, five to 10%, uh, in your cadence, your, your step rate, um, can have positive effects in a a number of areas in the lower body, uh, in terms of, you know, how it shifts the stress and, and what muscles are working and that sort of thing. Um, you know, as far as, uh, The the recent evidence, um, the study I was talking about um, was by a a group in Wisconsin, uh, led by Brian Heiderscheid, who has done a lot of uh, research in the area of uh, of step rate and its effects. Um, And what they found was that in uh, in college runners, um, the uh, they looked they tracked over three years um, uh, runners, and they they looked at their cadence and uh, those that had a higher cadence, had a lower risk of sustaining a stress fracture in subsequent seasons. Um, And the the risk was quantified at, um, for every one step per minute, uh, greater um, stride rate or step rate, uh, your risk of bone stress injury went down by 5%. So pretty significant, um, thinking that, you know, if that's increasing uh, 10 steps per minute, then that's a 50% decrease in risk. Um, So, and that's well within the realm of, of what we recommend. Uh, You know, we often recommend five to 10%, um, which is going to be more like uh, probably 10 to 15 steps for most people. So as far as, you know, when to implement it, how to implement it um, and who to implement it with, um, you know, there's some studies that have looked at uh, from a performance perspective, they looked at um, kind of more novice runners versus experienced runners Um, And they, they found that in terms of running economy uh, most novice runners were running at a a rate of sort of five to 10 uh, steps less than what they uh, would optimally run at Um, in experienced runners. It was less than that. It was more like three to five steps per minute, um, but still lower than what they um, they should optimally run at uh, from a, from a performance point of view. And then, in terms of injury risk, again, it's that sort of 5 to 10% number is what we've seen in a lot of studies in terms of optimizing uh, your cadence. So for most people, that's kind of what we would aim for. Um, of course, if you're already running with a, a high step rate, then this probably doesn't apply to you. You know, if you're running with 180, 190 steps per minute, um, you're already at that ceiling. And, and, you know, that's not someone who I would necessarily recommend increasing step rate for. So th- these are averages across the population. Um, and I would say in the clinic, you know, whenever I see someone under 170 steps per minute, that's when I'm really thinking about increase their, increasing their cadence. There's room to increase it there. Um, and I'm also thinking about it, you know, uh, from the perspective of why they're seeing me. If I think that increasing their cadence um, is going to reduce stress in the areas that uh, I'm concerned about. Um, then that's another reason to, to do it. But it's certainly an easy thing to do. Most people can do it just with the assistance of uh, a metronome. They can download it onto their phone and they can run with it and they can just try and keep time with it. Um, you can have sort of varying programs of, uh, you know, starting with feedback through the, the entire run and then decreasing that feedback over time so it becomes more uh, internalized. Um, but it's, it's, it's a very easy thing to do. I usually recommend people just do it on their easy runs. Um, not thinking about it, you know, with their, uh, you know, doing a workout and that sort of thing. Cadence will change a little bit, obviously, as you increase your speed, it's going to increase. Um, but when we're measuring it in the kind of easy recovery run, uh, type situation, um, in those sort of mid range paces, uh, it's usually pretty stable in there and that's what we're trying to increase. And the, the thought is that then um, you're going to increase it at the top end as well. You mentioned, uh, you know, should you be thinking about it at mile 18 or mile 19 of the marathon? Um, and that's, that's an interesting question because, you know, some studies have shown that, uh, with fatigue, um, your cadence tends to drop. And, um, and so if you're maintaining the same speed or trying to maintain the same speed, what you're going to do then is increase your, your step length. Um, and so you know that can have an effect because studies have shown that increasing your step length um, can increase increase the uh, the vertical uh, ground reaction forces and the uh, vertical loading rate uh, and the braking forces um, that you experience when you hit the ground, um, which could also potentially uh, you know increase your risk for injury. So um, I would say yeah at mile eighteen, mile nineteen, um, it might actually be a good cue uh, for you to think. Okay, let's not think about increasing my cadence here, but let's think about maintaining my cadence. Uh, so if I know I'm running, you know, at a cadence of 175 steps per minute, um, let's just like as a cue try and maintain that cadence, keep that marathon shuffle going, that short stride, but keep that uh, that turnover happening, and that may allow you to maintain your speed um, and and sort of do it in a more optimal way than by increasing your step length.
0: Yeah, I like how it's an available tool to the athlete to hopefully help prevent some of that slowing down at the end of a a marathon. Because I think in, in the marathon in particular, and I know I was very specific with that odd question, that you know, your, your fatigue is partly your nervous system. And so that's one of the reasons why you're taking slower, ste- uh, having a slower step rate. And so that's, it can really be difficult to do that, but I think it's a really helpful cue to give yourself and maybe you could practice it at the end of a long run and really check in with yourself and see what your cadence is. Um know, I'm wondering, you know, you said maybe let's not worry about this when we're doing a workout, let's worry about it on easy runs. What happens if, you know, you're a highly competitive university athlete and your easy pace is 6:30 per mile compared with, you know, a more uh weekend warrior kind of recreational runner whose easy pace might be 10:30 or 11 minutes per mile? Is there different guidelines for different people at different ends of that pace spectrum, you know, when they're still running at an easy effort, but for different people that might be very different?
1: Yeah, so I think um, probably in that instance you're going to see quite a big difference in their a greater difference in their step length as opposed to their step rate, um, and so you know that that six thirty mile runner is probably able to eat up more ground with every step than the uh, the recreational runner, um, and so you know even on those uh, those easy runs, um, you know they're probably getting a, a longer step length. And that's what's resulting in, in most of the, um, the difference in their speed, uh, or in their pace. Um, and in both instances, I would say you want to probably, um, maintain a higher step rate than what may come naturally. Um, because, uh, you know, often, um, and I used to see this all the time when people, I think, um, you know, more followed the kind of, uh, LSD or long, slow distance kind of pattern of, of, of running, you know, like that long run on the weekend, but extra, extra slow, or, you know, like maybe running with a, a friend who is slower where they kind of lope along a little bit more, um, at a, at a rhythm that's outside of their own natural rhythm. Um, and I, you know, I quite often used to see people come in with injuries and that would be, they describe it. It was like, Oh, you know, it was after the the easiest run I've done in months, you know, it was uh, this, this really long, slow run, but I was running with a friend of mine who was slower than me, or I was, you know, just taking it extra easy, you know, on this run. Um, But they're outside of that rhythm and they probably slowed down their cadence and and changed some of those stresses uh, on their body. So, yeah, I mean, I would say like there's certainly going to be differences between runners. um, And so it's important to kind of look at what their kind of natural cadence is and target an intervention you know, directly at them, but I, I would say that for the most part, um, you know, that recreational runner, I still want to have them, um, at, you know, 170 plus steps per minute. Um, and, uh, and same thing with the, the, uh, competitive runner.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting how, you know, you were just talking about cadence and how, you know, it's something that can, can vary. And with that said, it should still be, fairly high and maybe even higher than you think. Uh, I thought it was also very interesting how you, you basically alluded to the fact that it's definitely possible for runners to run too slow. And and I think that is interesting for a lot of runners to hear because, you know, we're told that recovery days should be easy, go really slow. You know, there's this big movement now to really make sure your rest days, your recovery days are truly easy and it just reminds me, you know, back when I was a college cross-country runner, I was pretty well-trained and I was a counselor at the school's cross-country camp over the summer. And I was running with uh, a middle school girls group in the morning, probably two to three minutes slower than my normal easy running pace. And I was so sore after that three-mile run at a, at a 9.30, 10-minute mile pace just because it was so different, and and I liked how you said it's outside of your normal rhythm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that is 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 different for a lot of runners to hear. What what do you mean by your normal rhythm?
1: Yeah, I think um, you know we've all got these sort of um, you know automated neurological patterns, right? Um, when we walk, we don't think about how we walk; we just walk. Um, and when we run you know, you, you get into a, an automated pattern, um, with, with the way you sort of modulate the, um, you know, the, the frequency of your gait, or the frequency of your steps, um, as well as the, the stiffness of your joints. And, and so what I mean by that is like, um, you know, depending on the surface you're running on that sort of thing, um, you're going to change how stiff your lower limbs are on landing, right? So if you're running on, uh, softer ground, you're going to have a stiffer leg. Uh, if you're running on harder ground, you're going to have a less stiff leg uh, to accommodate some of that um, that that shock that you feel when you hit the ground. Um, but these are natural things. You're not doing, you know, you're not thinking about this. It's it's automated. Um, and and so I think it's important that any uh, any time we change that, you're it's a new input to your system, and your system has to kind of accommodate to that. And so, you know, the example of, of running with, uh, you know, someone who's slower than your, your natural pace for an easy run, um, you know, you're, you're running slower at a, at a cost in terms of, you know, you, you may have to think a little bit more about how you're running, or you may just end up taking, um, you know, longer steps and and a, a lower step rate to kind of match subconsciously that, that other runners separate. Um, and so, you know, things like that can actually have a detrimental effect.
0: It seems like it's a neural habit, a sort of neuromuscular pathway that has been created over time, almost like a mental model. Uh, And if you start using that mental model differently, or, or try to create a whole new model, it takes adjusting, and there's a physical cost to that.
1: Yeah, and there's some interesting research being done on Gate complexity and gate variability um looking at all kinds of different variables but but essentially the idea is that um you know we tend to run within kind of a, a fairly small sphere of variability and injury may occur when we start to um, run outside of that sphere um because maybe our body doesn't know how to uh, interpret those signals or accommodate those changes, um, and that's it's an interesting area of research that's going on. And, and certainly, with the uh, with wearable technology being able to measure some of these things a bit more accurately and, and over the course of runs, um, I think we're going to see more of that sort of uh, line of research in the future.
0: I'd love to go back to one of the things you mentioned when you were talking about how Born to Run was this catalyst for new ideas and thinking and research, you mentioned footwear. And of course, with Born to Run, how you think about your footwear, that was such a major component to the book. Where are we now with our thinking on footwear? Because I think pre-Born to Run, everyone wore standard running shoes, normal trainers that, you know, any stability, maybe even motion control shoe that you might find at a running store. And since 2010, we now have such a wide variety of footwear to choose from, from, you know, super minimalist shoes to maximalist shoes that combine some elements of Almost motion control with minimalism, and the range of options available has just exploded. So, what is a helpful way of thinking about footwear as it pertains to injury prevention and staying healthy that is is maybe science based?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a big question. The, the I guess um, you know one way to think about it is that uh, when Born to Run came out, and, and uh, you know Vibram came out with their Five Finger Shoe, or at least. The, the Vibram Five Finger shoe was adapted for running. Of course, it was before that; it was uh, a water shoe. Um, you know, the the pendulum swung, you know, way off in one direction uh, towards this sort of minimalist uh, footwear, um, and and then it it kind of swung back past where we were, um, and and off in in the other direction to the maximalist uh, footwear. You know, when when Hoka's really started taking over uh, a few years later. And, um, you know, it's, it's now kind of just, I I would would say swinging back and forth within that entire spectrum now. And I think, um, it's great because there's choice and, uh, you know, I don't think that there's necessarily, you know, one perfect shoe. Uh, I think that, uh, there is, you know, there's preference you have to take into account comfort, um, you know, and, and some people want to run in less shoes. Some people want to run in more shoe, uh, depending on your training. Um, you know, if you're running high mileage, uh, you're probably going to need some sort of cushioning, uh, under your foot. And, and, uh, so I, I think, you know, the, the whole idea of, um, footwear preventing injury, we haven't really gotten anywhere on that. Um, and, uh, I wrote an editorial a, a few years ago now with, uh, Rich Willie, who's, um, a, uh, a well-known physical therapist and researcher on running injuries, um, in Montana, um, that basically looked at what evidence is out there to date, um, you know, high level evidence, uh, and, and there's really no type of shoe, whether it's traditional, minimal, maximal, or, or zero drop, um, that has been shown to prevent injuries, um, and you know that's not to say that we won't get there someday, but you know in the last 50 years of um, of technology uh, and R and D going into shoe designs, we haven't gotten there at all yet. Um, and you know I think now we're looking more at performance uh, in footwear, so you know that that uh, that idea of shoe design to prevent injury is not gone, um, but the the emphasis seems to have shifted to performance, at least for the time being, with uh, different types of foams and carbon plates. But uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, with more and more people running in those shoes uh, and not just racing, but actually training in those shoes, um, are we going to start to see other injuries developing as a result of that? And is that going to kind of lead us back down the road of changing shoe design for uh, injury prevention? Um, and I will say that, uh, you know, anecdotally and certainly, you um, in some of the runners I treat, uh, and, and this pertains more to the kind of elite level because the average recreational runner isn't, uh, you know, training high volume in, in these carbon plated shoes because it's just not economical. But, um, you know, some of the, uh, the elite runners who are, are certainly suffering, um, you know, some injuries as a result. And so I think we're going to start to see a little bit more of that coming out and, and that may affect the design of these shoes or the choice of when to wear them at least.
0: Now, Chris, I have an opinion that we will never really invent a shoe that prevents injuries because runners will always find unique ways to injure themselves by running too much, too soon, too fast, all before they're ready for it. What do you think of that? Do you think that the training is really the chief determinant of whether or not you're going to get injured, not the shoe?
1: Yeah, 100%. (laughs) <laughs> i'm totally on okay. that um i i still have a dream that we you know can have shoes that uh you know can perhaps eliminate or or prevent some injuries uh from occurring but absolutely um i think it's the runner's psyche that's what what gets people injured um you know we we have a lot of a lot of common traits among us runners um that uh can be very good in terms of uh you know the work ethic required and all this sort of stuff but um, can be very negative in in terms of uh, preventing injuries.
0: Yeah, we fly a little too close to the sun sometimes, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, speaking about injuries and and staying healthy, and, and you've looked at so many different areas of prevention and and different facets of physiology and mechanics and all that. I'd love to zoom out and take you know a thirty thousand foot view of the big picture principles that runners can focus on hopefully to stay healthy. So from an injury prevention perspective, what are some of your most important suggestions for runners to stay healthy? I know this is a very big question, but you know, maybe some of you know, your 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 top 3 most impactful or important ideas to keep in mind that will hopefully lead runners to make better decisions about their training so that they can stay healthy.
1: Yeah, I mean I think um you know, listening to your body is probably the most important Um, and, and that kind of (laughs) alludes to what we were just talking about, um, that I I think a lot of runners don't listen to their bodies or, or ignore their bodies or some of the signals that are, their bodies are giving them. Um, you know, we've, we've already talked about it, but you know, most, if not all injuries are a result of training errors. Um, and you know, running related injuries are typically overuse injuries. They don't really, you know, they really pop up out of nowhere. Um, there is some sort of warning usually before they, they arrive, um but you know the, the problem again is you know the typical runner is uh, is type a and trying to get the most mileage in and never wanting to skip a run or a workout but you know sometimes the smarter decision is to take a, a day off or, or go easy instead of hard uh, or cross train instead of what you know what was originally in your training plan so i mean i tell runners um that you know if there's pain greater than three out of 10, um, or, you know, the quality of the pain is, is more acute or sharp. Um, or if they're compensating in their gait pattern in some way to, to avoid pain, then they probably shouldn't be running through it. Um, and you know, also if your pain's increasing from day to or, day or coming after running, uh, and, and not going away after about an hour, um, then you're also probably overdoing it. And that's kind of typical of tendon pain. So things like Achilles tendinopathy, um, plantar fasciitis as well. Um, you know, where, where maybe stiff or sore at the start of a run, but it warms up and goes away. And then, uh, you know, it only comes back later, uh, after the run and the next morning. Um, so I think, you know, listening to your body and knowing when to adjust your training, uh, is probably the single most important thing. Um, Also, you know, strength training, we've already discussed a little bit, but I I think it is really important um, in the type of strength training you do. So not, you know, the the typical skinny distance runner in the gym lifting five pound weights for, you know, three sets of 60, um, but, you know, more like three reps of six to eight with heavy resistance. Um, And what that does is, you know, it can increase the capacity of your muscles and tendons um, to withstand those higher training loads that you want to do when you're running. Um, so I would say those are probably the two most important, you know, we're still waiting on the, the, strength training research to kind of show, um, that it does, uh, actually prevent injuries. Um, but of course we're, we're waiting on a lot of stuff to show they can prevent injuries. It's really difficult to measure that sort of thing in the real world. Um, and I think the, uh, the theory is quite sound, um, that, uh, that it can help prevent injuries.
0: This sort of reminds me of how I read once that coaching is part art and part science, how you have to rely on the science, but sometimes the science isn't there yet and you just have to use your good common sense judgment. And I feel like strength training is, is one of those areas where, you know, there's certainly been some studies that have been very promising and showing that there's very real injury prevention benefits of strength training. Um, and, and I was going to talk about some myths that we could bust here on the show. And one of the myths was runners should lift for endurance. You know, you said uh, three sets of 60 repetitions, which is <laughs> a great <laughs> hyperbolic example of of lifting for endurance. Um, can you go into a little bit more detail on why we shouldn't do that? Because on its face, it makes a lot of sense for an endurance runner to get into the gym and to lift weights for the goal of endurance with high repetitions and relatively low weight, because after all we're endurance athletes, don't we want to gain endurance? Why, why should we be lifting heavy? Aren't we just going to get big and bulky?
1: Yeah. So th- that's exactly the reason why sh- we should be lifting heavy. Cause you're already getting that from running, right? You're already out there doing, um, lots of high rep, low resistance, um, uh, work. Th- that's what running is. Um, you know, taking thousands of steps, Uh, over and over again um so you know time spent in the gym should be uh you know after trying to achieve a different stimulus and that's the the high resistance low reps um and there's a couple of reasons one is um you increase muscle fiber recruitment so you actually access muscle fibers that you don't necessarily access um through running um of course if you're doing things like uh like speed work and hill work then you're going to access more muscle fibers for sure um but still not the same extent that you're going to get with your, um, really heavy lifting. Um, so, you know, we're trying to access more muscle fibers because mm. you know what, at the end of the marathon at that, you know, mile 21, 22, 23, um, mm. I'm happy to access any muscle fibers. I still have left, right. If, if all my slow twitch muscle fibers are totally fried, um, I can still use those fast twitch muscle fibers. They still work. Right. Um, and so, uh, I want them to be, to be there and, uh, able to help out. Um, and then, you know, another reason is that, uh, running economy, uh, can improve with that type of strength work. And the reason for that is that, um, you know, when we do really high load, uh, work, we're stimulating the tendons a little bit more in our body. And so we know that tendons, um, you know, their job is to attach muscle to bone, but they have a property, um, because of the type of, uh, material they're made with, they can store and release energy. Um, and so it's basically free energy. Every time you hit the ground, um, if we think about your Achilles tendon, um, it's getting lengthened. Um, and so it's like a a rubber band being stretched out and then it's going to spring back. And so that next step, um, you've got, uh, you know, some force generated from your, your calf muscle, um, pulling on that Achilles tendon, but you're also getting some free energy from that, uh, Achilles tendon rebounding back. And so, you know, what we want is to have stiffer tendons or, or stiffer elastic bands, because that's going to give us more energy return. Um, and so that's the type of, uh, thing that you get when you're doing that, uh, high load, low rep, um, strength work.
0: Now, you mentioned joint stiffness before, and I feel like this is a, an issue that is often misunderstood because we as runners you know, almost go through our entire training lives trying to not be stiff. We want to be loose. We want to feel supple. So let's talk a little bit more about joint stiffness, what we actually mean by that, and and how it helps with your running economy.
1: So I should clarify, joint stiffness in the sense that I'm talking about, is a, a biomechanical term, um, and it you know comes from sort of mechanical engineering, and, and it's uh, it's basically that the definition is the the resistance to deform under load. And so, um, you know, if we picture your knee joint, um, we can apply, uh, you know, if you, so, let's say you are um, you know hopping off of a uh, two meter step, and landing on. Sorry, I'm going to speak in feet for you. Uh, a, a six, <laughs> six <foot meters>. <laughs> um, hop up a six foot step land on the ground um, you can land with uh, a lot of bend in your knee and absorb that impact um, or you can land with a stiffer knee um, so it's going to bend less um, and you will not absorb that impact through the knee and through your quads it's going to pass on further up the chain right so you can feel that right up into your uh into your neck and your your head Um, as opposed to landing with a a less stiff knee and allowing it to bend more um, under that load uh, you're going to attenuate that force before it reaches up to the the head and neck. And so we're, we're constantly modulating that when we're running. Um, As I said previously, uh, depending on the, the terrain we're on um, whether going uphill, downhill um, and also um, when we're trying to increase speed or, or conserve energy. So, when we talk about stiffness as in kind of like that, that feeling you get the morning, um, you know, after doing a hard workout or after the marathon um, that that's uh, kind of a different stiffness that we're talking about there. And, and um, and so I, yes, I think from a, a pain reduction standpoint, um, we probably want to get rid of some of that stiffness because it's not comfortable. Um, at the same time, I'm not a a big fan of, you know, stretching too much, uh, static stretching. Um, and, and that's what people will do, you know, when they feel that stiffness, they'll stretch, they'll foam roll, these sort of things. Um, that stiffness is, is actually a good thing in, in some ways, because it's going to increase, um, that, uh, that energy return when we're running. Um, and so you don't want to but I, I don't think that runners should be spending a ton of time doing static stretching and yoga um, trying to essentially um, loosen that elastic band again um, because you're, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. There's probably some happy medium somewhere in there. Um, and maybe a little bit of stretching is a good thing. Um, but I, I don't think it should be a major goal of runners to kind of, uh, stretch everything out. So you're loose and supple, um, every day, because I don't think it's, uh, it's going to have a positive effect on your performance or, or for that matter on, uh, preventing injury.
0: Well, there's another myth that we were going to bust that static stretching prevents injuries. And uh, you know, there was a, a great CDC meta review that they published. It might have been a decade ago now, but they looked at over 300 different studies on static stretching and found that it had absolutely no effect on your risk of getting a running injury. And is there has there been any more conclusive evidence since then because this is a fairly old study, but it sounds like we're just further confirming what we already knew that stretching doesn't really help you stay healthy. it might, make you feel good and be a source of relaxation, but it's really not going to offer you any tangible performance or prevention benefits.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's certainly still studies out there looking at stretching, um, and it's, uh, it's effect on injury prevention and performance. Uh, and, and they all seem to kind of fit the same pattern. Um, I think timing is a really important issue. And so, you know, um, certainly when I was growing up, like we went before any sort of Fitness activity. We were told to do our static stretches, right? Like we would warm up and and uh, and do you know static hamstring stretches, static calf stretches, all sort of thing. And um, and you know, I think that for sure is not a positive thing. And and not only will it not prevent injury, it actually may increase risk of injury um, to to do that before uh, intense activity. Um, and it can also reduce your performance. And, and that's probably through that kind of stiffness mechanism that I was talking about. But, you know, static stretching after activity, um, I'm not against that. Um, I, I think if it makes you makes you feel good and you're, um, you know, relaxes you, I think those are positive reasons for it. Um, it's just that uh, I wouldn't spend a large amount of your time on it. And I wouldn't be under the impression that it's going to prevent injuries for you either. Um, and I think, you know, most people are tight for time um, and, you know, most runners want to maximize the amount of time they're out there running for. And if you, um, you know you have to come back and do an hour of stretching and foam rolling every night or that sort of thing, um, you know, it might it, it's going to take away from other aspects of training um, and maybe it takes away from from sleep. You know, if you're if you're doing that before you go to bed. Um, I'd say you're probably better off uh, going to bed earlier and getting more sleep to recover than by stretching and foam rolling.
0: Right. Use that time for sleep and strength training. You'd probably be much better off. Exactly. Now, what about the myth that running is is bad for your knees? And I still get some questions about this from time to time, especially I think over the last year, a lot of folks have taken up running who might not have been runners before the pandemic, their gym was closed and, you know, now they're able to go out and do some exercise. Uh, but this question inevitably comes up, isn't running going to damage my knees?
1: Yeah. So I think, I mean, it comes from probably, uh, you know, like anytime you start running, um, you know, if you haven't been running before and you're new to running, you start running, or if you, you know, even come like from a, a fitness background where you may have, uh, been, you know, really fit from cycling or swimming. The difference with running is it's an impact activity. And so when you start running, uh, and start that activity, you feel it. I mean, you feel the, the effects of that impact and you're going to feel it in your joints and, and your knee is one of those spots. Um, and so there's this sense that, well, that that's bad, right? That impact is causing pain in my knee. Um, and that's, you know, that, that you could take that you know, a couple steps further and say, well, that's going to cause damage in my knee and result in osteoarthritis. But we've had some really, uh, good, large studies, uh, come out fairly recently, um, that have kind of confirmed that, um, that with the exception of like, uh, the very top end kind of elite runners who have sustained high mileage over, a, a, a prolonged, um, number of years, um, that running does not lead to osteoarthritis. And in fact, it can have a protective effect um, by increasing the thickness of the cartilage in your knees um, and maintaining the strength of the muscles around your knees. And, you know, even in people who have uh, diagnosed knee osteoarthritis, there have been studies that have looked at that and and found that running can be beneficial as long as it's dosed appropriately. Um, So, yeah, I would say that that's uh, another uh, myth out there.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting the mechanism through which running is protective for the knees. It actually, similar to strength training, it can toughen up some of those connective tissues in your joints. And, you know, it's almost like you're, you're doing the thing that you feared would hurt you as something that will keep you healthy in the future. And I think that's very counterintuitive, but uh, also very encouraging because it means more people can run, more people can do what they love, even despite some low amounts of osteoarthritis or, or the fear of getting that kind of injury. So I think it's very encouraging. Yep, absolutely. Now, Chris, this was so fun for me, because I love this, these kinds of discussions about running about the science of training. And before we wrap up, are there any high level prevention ideas or principles that maybe we haven't had time to discuss today that you'd like to leave us with?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, this sort of ties in with the education component that I was hammering uh, home before. But, um, you know, in order to be able to provide appropriate advice and education to runners, you really do need to be able to monitor or or measure their training precisely. Uh, And, you know, I think one way that we've been doing that actually, you know, for a while now is using wearable technology. Uh, And so, you know, runners have been using – heart rate straps, GPS watches, that sort of thing for quite some time and and probably more than in other populations. Um, But, you know, recent wearable technology is now able to provide even finer details. So uh, such as, you know, step counts, um, landing impacts, vertical oscillation, that sort of thing. Um, And, you know, so far we haven't really been able to determine which if any of these variables uh, is the most important track, but, you know, there is ongoing research in that area. And I think what the research has shown um so far is that uh that taking some measure of external load um and so that's the load that's applied to your body whether that's duration uh that you're running for the distance you're running for or the number of steps perhaps um and multiplying that by a measure of internal load an example of that would be like a session rating of perceived exertion so on a scale of one to ten how hard did that that effort feel and then, you know, if you multiply those two values together, you get a, a more precise, uh, you get a number and that's a more precise estimate of that training stress that's, uh, that you're placing on your body. Um, so I think the, the simplest way to do that for most runners is just to take the duration uh, of your run in minutes and multiply it by that uh, rate of perceived uh, exertion, you know, on that scale of one to 10 and, and, uh, and just pop that in your training log and, and track it over time um and and you get a sense of how your body's holding up to to your training you know i think if you if you go out for what is meant to be an easy recovery run um and you come back and you think that was actually hard like that that was challenging for me um just having that uh going through that process of reflecting on how it felt um i think is important because you may start to realize yeah, I, maybe I need a break or I need a, a down week here. I, I've been building my mileage you know, progressively <laughs> over the last 16 months because there hasn't been a race or something like that. You know? um, and uh, and I, I need an easy week. I need to take some time off or I need to cross train. Um, and so I think that is probably uh, a really important, easy thing for a lot of runners to, uh, to implement into their training. Um, and you know, it may not be perfect, but I think it's a lot better than what most runners currently do, which is really just track their mileage.
0: Yeah. It's interesting how, first of all, I I could just see myself getting lost in graphing this number over time. I, you're really talking to a big running nerd right here. Um, but it is just fascinating to me because I've had so many conversations with guests on the podcast and big suggestions very frequently lead to keep a training log and just keep a log of how you perceive you are feeling on a daily basis. And I feel like that is such a a consistent reminder from guests uh, who are coaches to physical therapists to, you know, certified mental performance consultants. They're all adamant about keeping a training log. And and I think hearing it from a wide variety of people really Hits that point home that there is tremendous value in such a practice, so um thanks for hitting that home again for us today and and all this expertise and knowledge you dropped on the podcast today, you know you were kind of saying how uh making better training decisions is important, and I'm always saying how knowledge is a competitive advantage if you know more about the sport and how to train and more personally to you, how your body responds to that, you're just going to be such a better runner. So uh, Chris, I really appreciate you being here. The book is Science of Running. Uh, I hope runners check it out. It's available anywhere, right? Is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah, you can get it uh, anywhere.
0: All right. I will also include a link if (laughs) someone can't Google it in the show notes for the show. Chris, thank you so much for being here.
1: Okay, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
0: That's all, folks. I hope this conversation broadened your intellectual horizons, helped you get a better handle on the complex world of injury prevention, and gave you a few actionable ideas to implement in your own training. Don't miss Chris's book, Science of Running, now available everywhere, and the show notes on the Strength Running site with even more links and resources discussed in this episode. Now, our sponsor, Precision Hydration, has generously offered 15% off your first order with code STRENGTH15. If you remember back to last year, I interviewed their founder and CEO, Andy Blow, about all things hydration in episode 147. And Andy was nice enough to set me up with a custom sweat test. And I learned a lot of new things about my body in the process. So I don't sweat very much, and I knew this from experience. It was just great to put some numbers behind it. But what I did learn too is that when I do sweat, I have a very high salt content in my sweat. So for long efforts when it's hot, I certainly have to pay far more attention to my electrolyte levels so I don't crash. Now, of course, there isn't a one size fits all approach to hydration for every single athlete, which is why I love that Precision Hydration helps athletes refine their hydration strategy for whatever event you might be training for. And if you can't get a custom sweat test done, then no sweat. They have a free online sweat test that you can take at precisionhydration.com. And that will give you your own personalized hydration strategy. Now, where I am here in Denver, Colorado, it is heating up. It was 97 yesterday. I'm ending my runs a lot sweatier than I was just a couple weeks ago. So I know I'll be paying a lot more attention to my hydration and electrolyte needs, especially with those longer runs and when I go up in the mountains here at Altitude. And I'm grateful that Precision Hydration offers a wide variety of products to help, from tablets to packets to capsules. Check them out at precisionhydration.com and don't forget that you can get 15% off your first order of electrolytes that match how you sweat by using the code STRENGTH15. That's STRENGTH15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. That's our show today. Thank you so much for subscribing and hanging out with me today. As always, don't hesitate to reach out to me anytime if you have questions about your running at support at strengthrunning.com. We'll be in touch soon.